Colter Nuanas from ESPN Montana here at the M Store. Proud to present our Nuanas Now podcast each and every day, available on all of your various podcast hosting platforms. One of their awesome partners, a guy that really is uh, helping spread the word about the M Store, is Grizz All American Junior Bergen. What's up, man? Thanks for coming in. Yes, thank you for having me. First of all, you got a cool t shirt. What's it like being on a t shirt? You're a kid from Billings, Montana, so that, yeah. might, that must be kind of surreal knowing there's a t shirt of you at the M Store. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, I went to a couple basketball games back home. And uh, I saw some kids running around with I their love shirt it. on. And it was really surreal. It was a cool moment, cool experience for sure. Uh, that's so cool. You guys do such a good job of embracing how much the community loves you. But when people are looking up to you like they do, I mean, they think, I mean, you're the man right now. for <laughs> <laughs> the University of Montana. What's yeah. that like being a Montana kid? Um, it's different for sure. Um, you know, growing up, you kind of look up to guys like who are in the NFL totally. and stuff like that. But, um, you know, it's just great to have a, a positive influence on these kids' lives. Um, you know, I just wanted to make sure... Uh, I set the example and lead by example and give them someone to look up to. Go check out the M Store. They're located there at the corner of Higgins and Broadway here in the city of Missoula. And you can also visit anytime online, MontanaMStore.com. They have all the latest and greatest, a whole bunch of original Grizz gear. And, of course, they have Junior Bergen T-shirts. Junior Bergen, proud partner with the M Store, as well as us here at uh, ESPN Montana. Thanks for swinging by, man. Yes, sir. Thank you for having me. The M Store, where they're all Grizz all the time. It is a business angle with Justin Angle, University of Montana business professor, presented by Blackfoot Communications in Missoula. Justin, back in the seat. How you doing, my friend? I'm doing well. How are you guys? Hi, Mike. It's uh, good to hear your voice on the segment. Absolutely. Just trying to not embarrass anybody. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of my game plan every day of my life, and I rarely uh, meet the challenge. <laughs> <laughs> There's no such thing as failing except for if you don't try. That's what I've learned during the pandemic. <laughs> no such thing as failure except <laughs> for just not trying. Justin, let's get into some of this stuff because I think we have a lot of interesting things to start with. But I thought you had an interesting point when we were going over this earlier today talking about sort of the overlay between the coverage of sports, the coverage of politics, and how uh, not necessarily the style, but more the ramifications of it. There, there's a lot of different things going on in the media world, the way that everything's evolving with the new TV contracts. Are people going to go to streaming? Are they going to continue to be on cable? Are they going to do both? And we've also seen a gravitation towards uh, emotional analysis rather than tangible analysis and, and maybe not as clear-minded but a lot more emotion-driven, a lot of tribalism existing in the world. So sort of hash this out for us. I mean, how do you think that these two things are overlaid and how do you think it will affect the way that maybe advertisers see uh, their advertising dollars being used on the sports front and just the future of maybe broadcasting in the sporting arena? Yeah, I mean, the thing that caught my eye in the last week or so was the story that Steve Karnacki, who's an NBC and MSNBC political analyst, um, is going to be joining the Sunday Night Football broadcast team. And Steve's, you know, a journalist with a ton of sort of understanding of data science. You see him, if you're watching NBC News, like on election night, for example, you see him kind of working the map and doing all the data visualization and analysis. And so he's got a great kind of mathematical statistical mind. And, you know, that sort of way of communicating information to an audience is really valuable in the sports context. And I could see him performing really well in that context, trying to sort of map out plays and statistics and numbers, you know, in real time as, as the story's developing. But it'll be interesting to see how he's received by the viewership. You know, if, if he just sort of instantly is sort of 
cast aside as a political um, agent and dismissed by half the country. Um, or if they just sort of see him as, hey, this is a smart guy that understands statistics and is doing so in the context of football. Um, seems like a risky play by NBC, but, you know, maybe NBC is already sort of considered part of the liberal media. I, I don't really know. Certainly MSNBC is, and that's what they built their brand around in many ways. But NBC, it's, it's, it's unclear. Um, you know, and I think there's, you know, somebody for managing NBC has to be thinking about that kind of, you know, those implications for, for the brand, both the news side of the house, but also the sports side of the house. Yeah, it's interesting. He definitely, um, he debuted last weekend, so not this past weekend, but the weekend before, and social media loved it. Um, but again, that's really? that's a bubble. So it's like, was it people who already loved him because they, you know, they're of the persuasion of the television station he was on? I don't know, but um, he... He got positive reviews in week one. I haven't read anything about week two, though. Yeah, I mean, I mean we've seen this before. I mean, years ago, uh, you know, ABC was talking about putting Rush Limbaugh on Monday Night Football. That ended up not happening. And then Keith Olbermann, you know, he started in sports, went to politics, went back to sports. The guy's kind of been all over the place and, you know, left a trail of tears in his past. But, um he still has, has jobs and, you know, maybe that, maybe the fact that these people are kind of more transparent about their political, um, uh, sort of stance are, you know, maybe it's less of a consequence just because people know where they stand. I can't, I can't quite, um, can't quite make sense. And Mike, I think you made a good point there. Like maybe the NBC audience and social media following is already kind of on the left to begin with. So it doesn't so much matter. I'm not sure. I think that's the balancing act that everybody's going to have to go through now as well because things have become so polarized. Do you have a, a divisive character that galvanizes half of a base but then makes them incredibly passionate and garners a, a more fierce following while ostracizing the other half? Or do you try to go somewhere down the middle but maybe not get the total number of, of viewers and engagements as you normally would? You know, and Kornacki's kind of different than Limbaugh and Olbermann uh, you know, in that he's not really a like fire breathing partisan. He's just kind of a right. data guy. He happens to, you know, be a lot on, on a more liberal leaning station. But, uh, you know, I think that that crossover is going to be really interesting to watch because I also think it's it's got potential to be overused. It's like it's kind of a novelty and he's out there on the screen and his khakis and da 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 da. He's in front of the big board and stuff like that. But, if he's not saying anything useful, I think people will get bored of the gimmick. So it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to see. But I, I definitely think it's a step above the short-lived uh, mistake ABC tried to do with uh, Rush Limbaugh and and Olbermann just kind of jumped the shark and became far too, um, you know, divisive. I, I don't think you can. I don't think you can bring those guys on and, and hope to carry on, in my opinion. But yeah, ultimately, I think you're right there. Like, Kornacki sort of made his name as an analyst, as a data analyst, as a data scientist in many ways. And so that's, you know, he can fall back on that. And um, that expertise kind of sets him apart. He's not just spinning off opinions. He's using data to kind of back up his analysis. Absolutely. Two-Tone Nuanas, ESPN Missoula. It is the business angle. Every other Tuesday, Justin Angle from the University of Montana Business School joins us to break down the overlay of sports and business. And uh, Justin, we keep talking about things that are, are public information and, uh, and 
I think, important for people to know, but seem just aren't quite common knowledge yet. But I think one of the most revelatory parts of the pandemic and of the last nine or 10 months is just all of the tangible and definitive elements of money and sports, particularly when it comes to college sports. Somebody was asking me the other night, you know, University of Montana men's basketball team, they played at Georgia uh, last Tuesday, so I guess it was a week ago from today. They got paid $90,000, which is the full guarantee for a Division One game. And most of the schools right now that are the Power 5 schools, they're only paying about half the guarantee. I think Montana's making fifty-five, maybe $60,000 to play at the University of Washington tomorrow night. But somebody asked me, well, how can Georgia pay more and I said the answer is simple. It's the SEC network. When the SEC school aligned, schools aligned, and they signed that TV deal, that thing pays out each program, each athletic department between forty-five and fifty million dollars. So you're talking revenue that is twice the budget of the University of Montana. So they have more money than they even know what to do with. That's why they're paying, you know, assistant strength coaches one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. That's why they're paying. Montana to come there for a Tuesday night game with 1,800 people in the stands, and they can pay them almost six figures. But recently now, we're seeing some uh, the, the, the the TV wars jump into the streaming side of things. I know this is the hu- a huge question in all of media. What is the future of media? How much influencing will streaming have? It's obviously going to have a big one, but who's willing to pay for it? Wh- wh- how do advertisers then get into the streaming mold, and how, do they, how does that monetary influx influence the way that advertising on our screens proceeds. And so you mentioned, Justin, that Disney's signing a deal with the SEC worth $3 billion. Tell us a little bit more about that and what sort of influence this might have on the landscape of of sports, particularly college sports in the southeastern of America. A few things there. Absolutely. You know, the, the shift of the sort of importance of revenue to these college programs has clearly shifted to the, to the, to the TV side to the television revenue because they can't really, they can have some people in the stands, but you know, even if you're kind of trying to fill your stadium to, to some capacity, you know, it doesn't compare under COVID with, um, with what you can make through the, through the TV side. What caught me about this headline with the SEC deal was that in the headline, they said Disney, they didn't say ABC sports. They didn't say ESPN, you know, ultimately Disney's parent company. So that kind of makes sense. But the press release says Disney, you know, that's a signal to me that, you know, Disney's thinking of this sort of content asset as something they might want to deploy in a variety of ways. And we're seeing in the capital markets increasing uh, market returns to a, what percentage of your revenue is attributable to recurring revenue. So, so, so subscribers you know, a dollar of subscription revenue is worth more than a one-time dollar purchase in terms of how that translates to market capitalization because the markets are rewarding business models that um, have recurring revenue as a, as a portion of the overall, um, as the overall top line. So in this case, you know, you mentioned advertising traditionally like these football games have been kind of a delivery vehicle for, um, for advertising, but you know, if we're moving to a world where we're in streaming and you can put this stuff behind a paywall and you can charge people a subscription service that they're sort of going to sign up, sort of set it and forget it. You pay your monthly fee, you pay your monthly fee You're to see how advertising fits in. Are people going to be willing to pay a premium to sort of avoid advertising? Um, you see that with 
you know, different forms of content. We haven't quite seen it in sports yet. And the games are sort of structured around it, the ad breaks and the TV breaks and all that stuff. But the signal that, you know, Disney could be looking, and we mentioned this a few weeks ago when we were talking about the NBA, um, this could be a, maybe a, a moment where the tides are turning and Disney's starting to think about packaging this piece of content in a different way. We'll see how it plays out. To tell Nuanas, one two nine ESPN Missoula statewide, SWX Montana Television. Mike Nugent joining me, Coulter Nuanas, and right now on the Rangage Brothers RV fold line, we're joined by Justin Angle. It is a business angle presented by Blackfoot Communications. Justin's a professor of business at the University of Montana Business School, and I have a question that's sort of outside of the realm of what we're talking about, but a broad question, Justin. When I was in journalism <laughs> school at the University of Montana, one of the classes I took was all about learning about and analyzing advertising and overlaying that with the trends in pop culture at the time in America. And we've seen advertising be a pretty relatively new thing with the rise of mass media, particularly television, but also in in print national publications like magazines like Time and Sports Illustrated, Newsweek, Playboy, things like that. But uh, it seemed as if there was tangible and tactful advertising strategies that existed in the 60s, 70s, 80s that were very effective and very influential in the way people thought, the way they acted, the way that they consumed. Now, advertising to me, you know, as somebody that's 33 years old, it seems so overwhelming and also so pointless. I don't really know how you could reach me as an advertiser, but maybe that's just because uh, of my, um, basically my my complete immersion in the, the technolo- technological world that we live in. What is your take on modern day advertising as a whole? Is it effective and is there still similar uh, strategies that uh, do have an influence on us and the way that we perform and the way we form our habits as there was in years past? Well, advertising can be tremendously effective. Um, and now we're sort of able to understand exactly where it is effective and how it is effective and with whom it is effective. And that's part of this whole general picture. I mean, Spending money on a Super Bowl ad, you know that that can that can make an imp, in, impact, but it's a very kind of crude way to make an impact. It can shape culture. It can kind of be you know a bit of a, a a cultural flashpoint. But in terms of being effective, it's not the same as micro-targeted digital advertising through your mobile device, uh, through your social media platform that companies are starting to invest in more and more and more. And the reason they're investing in it is because the sort of digital footprint that we're all leaving all over the internet, almost every minute of our day, we've got these, you know, cell phones in our pocket tracking us. We've got these listening devices in our home, you know, telling, you know, we're sort of talking to them whenever we need butter or wherever we need more soap or whatever is the, so the amount of information these companies know about us, they're able to use that to deliver us with ads that say the right thing at the right time to the right person. And I think the efficacy of that type of advertising is being becoming much more clear. And then you layer that on top of world where particularly like in live sports, the ratings are down, the product probably isn't as good right now. And advertisers are starting to second, you know, sort of second guess that spend that they've traditionally done. Hey, maybe that money we've been spending on TV, which is sort of an imprecise tool, you know, maybe we can spend less on the actual sort of content and how compelling it is and spend more on 
the, the sort of data science that delivers it to the customer, you know, the right customer at their most vulnerable moment. So, I mean, that's a bit of a cynical take, but you know, that's where the market's been going for years. And, um, you know, I think this, you know, COVID's accelerating that trend. And if, if anybody's seen the social dilemma, that this is a documentary that has been produced yeah. from some of the founding members of, of the, the tech companies, you know, Google, YouTube, you know, Twitter, Facebook, things like that. But the most chilling line in the in the social dilemma is when they say, if the product is free and you wonder why the product's free, it's because you're the product. And that's where <laughs> exactly. we're at. And one of Ryan Tutel's good friends, though, our buddy Quentin, and maybe he's out there watching. I know sometimes he watches on the YouTube. He lives various places all over the world. But as he says, he says, inject it right into my veins because at the end of the day, there's no way to be you're either in it or you're not there's no way to live on the fridge you're either in it and like we are we're talking on an internet-based phone line blackfoot communications set us up with all these great communication tools and so you're either in or you're not so i think that uh, even if you are cynical and aware of it uh i don't really know if there's any way to escape it you have anything to add to this advertising because you're kind of the well, blues in advertising i mean i you know this isn't the probably the proper term for but i almost call them stalker ads right it's like you know it's like if you go to you know a certain home home repair shop that we won't give free advertising to sure. and you look at something on their website it follows you around right and my biggest complaint about that advertising is i want there to be a button that says i bought it leave me alone <laughs> i already got no, it i bought the toilet stop <laughs> stop delivering it to me because i actually don't mind you know it's like we talk about you know, and, and the federal government's suing Facebook right now for, you know, being all interconnected and they're, they're worried about Google and things like that. And to a point, I don't mind it because I like my stuff talking to each other. And I like, you know, knowing my habits to a certain extent so it can assume and, and make my life easier. It's kind of like the Google virtual assistant. But um, um, I, I have two questions on kind of what you were talking about on kind of ratings and, and, and viewership. And if, if sports more and more go to a direct model where they figure out how not to do commercials, um, you know, in the red zone television channel in the NFL is kind of maybe an early precursor to that. Cause there's no commercials. Um, are they kind of biting the hand that feeds them? Cause at some point, all these people that pay so much money to advertise on like NFL games are going to get annoyed that, they're not reaching people, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I get what you're saying there, Mike. That there'll, there'll be an inflection point where, you know, if if the the content producers, the, the sports franchises, the leagues, whatever, and if they start to cater more to the subscription streaming audience and sort of you know make the advertise you know the traditional advertising product less compelling and inherently less effective would probably be the way the advertisers are thinking about it. Yeah. We're going to probably see some migration away. And, you know, I think and we're, we're, we're kind of already seeing that with, you know, companies, not some of the familiar companies, not buying those big, not, you know, big TV spots and spending it more on targeted internet ads. I mean, they're not sort of big and splashy, but, they're more effective in, in getting to the right people, right? It's about efficiency. They're trying to get their message to the right people at the right time. And so, yeah, I mean, I could, I could see advertisers pushing back, but like they got to figure out their way to get their message to their customer. And there's other more effective ways, mm-hmm. but the money will just flow efficiently to, to where they get the best return. He is Justin Angle, the business angle every other Tuesday brought to us by Blackfoot communications. One, 
last point, Justin, I thought this was a great observation on your part with the uh, the scuttle that's going on at the highest level of men's college basketball right now. Mike Shashetsky at Duke, Tom Izzo at Michigan State, Rick Patino. Where's Rick Patino now? Does he have a job or is he just is he floating around? I think he's back at some small Hofstra yeah. or something. Hofstra, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like that. It's just it's just truly amazing the scandals that you can get involved in at individual athletics and still find yourself in point. It's, it's I don't know what else yeah, you can do to get blackballed. Fodder for people who criticize college athletics. I mean, man, like I don't know what you can do to get blackballed from something if you uh, did what Rick Patino did and still have a job. But regardless, we're not going to go there but there's a lot of talk amongst some of the most powerful men in men's college basketball. Uh, I think Duke has officially canceled the rest of its non-conference games. Mm-hmm. Michigan State's con- contemplated doing the same thing. And uh, There's a lot of scuttle about this. And on one hand, I think the optics are to read in that this is hard on the kids from the mental health perspective, from the uh, pandemic perspective. But more, uh, more realistically, it seems as if this is a backdoor way for the Power Five to split itself from the NCAA find a way to replicate the college football model, the college football playoff model, where the Power Five basically control everything. They control all the money, and then the Power Five would somehow then enact its own NCAA tournament. We've uh, talked about this on the show before, but now it seems like this is gaining more traction, especially behind closed doors. The NCAA gets raked over the coals, and I think justifiably so in a lot of ways, but there also is an essential nature to the NCAA. The garnering and administering of championships is essential, particularly when it comes to non-revenue sports. There are 32 varsity sports offered at the Division One level, many of which are not mm-hmm. followed heavily by fans, but many of which are very essential to enhancing the culture of a campus and also just promoting the true nature of competition, the true nature of the actual phrase student-athlete. And so I worry that if the NCAA basketball tournament goes away in terms of the sponsorship from the NCAA, that will be a huge financial hit and maybe even the, the final nail in the coffin for the organization. And so you could say, well, the, the tournament will still go on and the and most of the people that benefit from it still will, but I just worry about what's going to happen to the other championships. Well, those go by the wayside, but we have women's soccer championships or you know indoor track and field, outdoor track and field, cross country, whatever it might be. But Justin, just, just your take on this potential fracturing and, and the way that money is influencing uh, pretty much all elements of college athletics right now. I mean, you lay it out there well, Coulter. I mean, this is sort of a, a classic kind of um, power situation. Who has the power? And, you know, what we saw in football is the power of five conferences, the, the teams, the universities um, that had the power. And we're seeing that sort of replicated in the basketball space right now. And under the stress of COVID, it's an opportunity for these schools to sort of exert that power. And I think there, are, you know, th- there is a moral foundation to the argument that, you know, is this the best thing to be doing with our student athletes right now? Um, I think that's a fair question. You know, I think it was Patino was sort of making the first comment saying, you know, why are we so focused on March madness? There's nothing wrong with May madness. So like pressing pause on the season, that's a reasonable people can disagree about that. There's, there's a good faith debate to be had, but I think your point about, Hey, maybe this is, an opportunity for these schools, um, the really sort of dominant players in basketball to split away and take control um, of the administration of their championship and their schedules away from the NCAA. You know, will that be a death knell to the NCAA? You know, I, I don't know. Um, it certainly would force them to think uh, 
creatively about how to fund all the infrastructure associated with all these other sports. Um, it's a tough one. I mean, we've talked about this before. I mean, the, the role of college athletics in the lives of so many folks, myself included, were, you know, it was such an important part of my life. And I see it as an important part of life uh, for many of the students here at the University of Montana. Um, but like this situation kind of lays bare how kind of obvious it is that are these, you know, football players in the power five conferences Are these basketball players in the power five, are these really student athletes? Right. Does it make sense to have them kind of go through the motions of being a college student. It kind of just cheapens that whole, I don't know. It just makes it obvious that this is maybe a charade of some kind and you know, if that curtain gets pulled back, what's the future of college athletics in general? Like, does it make sense to have college athletics? Those are big questions. We're not going to see those resolved anytime soon. But, um, yeah, it's sort of bringing things to somewhat of a, a tipping point, if you will. Absolutely. To me, just from the outside, it seems a lot more realistic in football where it's where the, the infrastructure is more or less there already, the grouping, the Power Five. Yeah. I think that basketball – the the power five needs to be careful what they wish for because i think that some of that that must see tv event of march madness is the games going on in the middle of the day on thursday and friday and the 16 playing the one and the hope that you're going to be the what was it umbc or whatever right maryland baltimore you know, county yeah that that pulls that upset and it's like i don't know that you get nearly the same audience if it's a 16 team tournament of schools entirely from the power five. Like, I think there'll yeah. be an audience, but it's like, I don't sit down and watch sec basketball. Ever. Right. Right. So it's like, I think that's dangerous. But the question I have for you is not really necessarily related to those two things, but do you think that title nine plays into this at all? Hmm. Because you know, the funding that the NCAA gets from March madness that absolutely supports the infrastructure for every championship outside of basketball and football um, or even lower level football, you know, would be impacted if the power five left. So how do those power five schools, you know, I just think the title nine conversation is something that they would have to really think through because they're going to have to spend money somewhere to make sure they're being equal in all things athletics. That's very interesting. And then who administers? Yeah. I mean, sports. you can't compartmentalize just football and basketball. So, you know, title nine would, would apply legally to, whatever entity these power five groups would form. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I, I, you know, I think it is a consideration and I'm not exactly sure how it plays out, but I don't think they'd be exempt from it at all. Fascinating. This is, we are going to readdress this. We are out of time today, but we'll be back after the new year, the first Tuesday of the new year. Let's plan on continuing this discussion and much, much more. Great stuff, Justin. It is the Business Angle with Justin Angle, University of Montana business professor, every other Tuesday. And we'll be back the first Tuesday of 2021. So catch us there, presented by Blackfoot Communications in Missoula. Thanks so much for joining us, Justin. We'll talk to you after the new year. It's finally starting to feel like winter around here. And if you need some nice winter gear, how about the fine folks at Sitka? They make awesome winter clothes, and they sell custom Bobcat Sitka gear at the MSU Bookstore. You can shop online anytime at msubookstore.org, or of course you can check out the MSU Bookstore 
live and in person there on the Montana State campus. They also have some graduation regalia back in order there at the MSU Bookstore. They have an awesome American Indian Council selection as well. Visit on campus anytime you need blue and gold or visit online anytime, anywhere, msubookstore.org. MSU Bookstore, your best place for blue and gold on game day or any other day located there on the Montana State campus.